Job 1, starting at verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then we'll jump over to Job chapter two, starting at verse one. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skins for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And then we move over to Luke, chapter 22. And this is in the midst of Jesus has just been betrayed or is about to be betrayed. They've shared in the Lord's Supper Um, if you recall at the supper, Jesus said, one of you shall betray me. Of course, the disciples are curious. It's kind of interesting if you read through Luke 22 how things move from one to the other. But of course, they they were curious as to who it was going to be. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then right after that in verse 24, it says also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. This is amongst the disciples. And then in Luke 22, starting at verse 31, we read this. And this is, of course, after Simon brags about the fact that, you know what? Nothing's going to move me from staying by your side, Lord. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And so our text this morning, congregation, is Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Over the last two or three decades, Hollywood has managed to create some major blockbuster movies slash series, and along with them comes the modern-day computer technology that allows these films to be produced with some pretty impressive and amazing special effects. You know, I had, I had written this sermon already quite a while ago, and, and yesterday one of our granddaughters came to me and said, Opa, will you watch... Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with me tonight. So I watched it with her last night, and it struck me in watching that movie how real the lion was, Aslan, in the movie. And his mouth moved when he spoke, and and it just looked so real. But anyway, many of these blockbusters have been built on theme characters, as you know, such as comic book characters, it's like Superman or Batman or the Marvel League or around some underdog type character who's seeking justice for himself or for someone else. And part of the appeal and the attraction and success of those films, I would submit, is that they're built on a platform of tension, one that would resonate and runs deep in the human heart. It's that contrast, that tension that exists between good and evil, between love and hate, or justice and injustice, or between truth and lies, or light and darkness. And often the common theme in these cosmic struggles is the hero character, the good guy or guys, And some of them are gifted characters that have some level of superpowers like Batman or Superman or Captain America. They'll eventually save the day or snatch victory out of certain defeat. And this morning we read from the book of Job. It's one of the few places in the Bible where God... I would suggest pulls back the veil, the curtain, or he opens the window into heaven and he allows us to get a glimpse of what happens when good and evil meet or watch what transpires when the author of all good has a conversation with the father of all that is evil. And if you were to search the scriptures, you'll discover that there's really only three other places in the Bible where we have that similar type of meeting. One's in Ezekiel, 
once in Isaiah, and another once in Revelation. And our text this morning is focused on Luke 22, which I said on the Apostle Peter and his denial. And some of you here might be tempted to say, so why are we reading from Job? And I would suggest because of the words spoken in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And I would suggest that we can't really have a discussion about what is happening to Peter without bringing the story of Job into the picture and to understand it. You see, the book of Job is full of biblical knowledge and material for us to look at. But for our benefit this morning, I would like to reference three words that may help us to understand what's happening and how it's important to our understanding of God and our own lives. And the three words are reality, reaction, and result. Reality, reaction, and result. And the first one is reality. Now, despite the fact that you and I, many of us might enjoy the man-made action-type movies that I just talked about, and they provide great entertainment, I would also suggest to you this morning that those movie scenarios are not depicting true reality. I would even suggest that they in Hollywood are selling an understanding of this war between good and evil that hinders our understanding of God, the universe, and then how it affects our own spiritual walks on a daily basis. Consider this in the movies you've watched. How many of them have played out in which victory shows up at the end and how we often got there in the film. And it's not the reality that you and I live under on this earth. A glimpse of reality, true spiritual reality, is looking through the open curtain into heaven and discussing or dis observing the discussion between Satan, the accuser, and God of the universe. God's word, and especially the details of the book of Job, has tried to help us understand the terms of engagement in this spiritual battle. It gives us the lay of the land, so to speak. Yes, it's true in 1 John 5 that it reminds all of us here that the whole world is under the sway or control of the evil one. And then Ephesians 6 reminds us that our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world. And here it comes, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And much of the constant tension the perpetual struggle and battles portrayed in the films, if you view them with a critical eye, I suggest that either by word or action or implication, 
you will find that the forces of good and evil are often very closely matched. In other words, the ongoing battle, the struggle while you watch the movie is often presented as a tug of war. We're at one moment or type or spot in the film, the bad guys are winning big time. And then the good guys seem to slowly claw back. And the underlying subtle message of all of this is that from a reality perspective, the victory somehow ends up being won on a thread. Sometimes just barely the good guy wins by some measure of good fortune or some interesting aspect of power that just happened to show up at the right time and gain victory out of sure defeat. A small and fortuitous element of victory. I've watched them. You've watched them. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And you might be tempted to think this morning, so what's the problem with all of that? What's the big deal? It made for a good movie. The good guys ended up winning in the end even. That's the way it should be. Well, here's the problem as I see it. That given our and my broken and lost and sinful and needy condition of my heart and my soul on this earth, these visual and mental impressions can cause you and I to diminish, to darken, and to distort the reality of who really holds the place of power in this cosmic world and in this universe. And I would strongly argue that it can, and it has, affected our spiritual walk on this earth. It can, and it will, affect our behavior. Because our convictions, our beliefs, they're what motivate us and form our attitudes in life. And I would suggest that they're built, they can be built on flawed perceptions of the reality between good and evil. You see, brothers and sisters, I'm not suggesting this morning that watching movies is inherently evil or bad. Or I'm not even suggesting that we'll forget about God if you're a Christian and his kingdom. That's not what I'm saying. But I am suggesting, and I've seen it, I've witnessed it in the lives of other people as well, and I can see it at times creep into my own mind and heart, that we can end up attributing way too much credit, way too much power to Satan and his army, to the evil side of this battle. And that will draw us away from exalting God as King and Lord and Sovereign and will affect how this shaky foundation will play out in my life and yours. It's interesting, if you read the history 
of how the book, the Bible, was put together. Many scholars will believe that Job, the book of Job, is one of the oldest books in the Bible. The timeline falls that it was written probably a couple of generations, and when he lived was a couple generations away from Abraham. Now, I don't presume to know the mind of God, but I would suggest that one of the purposes behind the record of the book of Job, especially if you study the whole book, is to make it clear who God is and his characteristics. Because if you read the book of Job from front to back, from the first chapter to the last, it will become very clear to you that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious, eternal, omnipresent, and unequivocally sovereign. Read it. It's all there. And the danger for you and I is we can miss that or lose sight of it, sometimes all of it. And it's reflected in the fact that we do the same thing that the nation of Israel did. We start looking for a king or a solution here on earth to the things that we struggle with and the things that trouble us. And we always end up here. It's, the, it's what I call the gap. The story of Job makes clear the huge gap between the creator and the created, which is you and I. And you see, what we forget sometimes is Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel. His powers are tremendously limited. Did you hear that? His powers are tremendously limited. God points out that out in how the story of Job unfolds. It's for the believer's benefit, my benefit and yours, that the trials that befell Job covered a various range of his life. I don't think it was an accident. Everything was touched. His family, his business, his wealth, his servants. Fire rained from heaven and even lost all his friends. That's reality. And the reality on top of that is Satan had no power over anything. He couldn't touch anything unless permission was granted to him by God himself. And here's the good news for you and I here this morning. Nothing can or will touch you or me. Nothing can or will happen to you or me. No trial, no tribulation, no affliction, unless permission has been granted by God in heaven. Nothing. In fact, 
After Satan had destroyed all the material blessings, and that's why I read Job chapter 2, and Job did not turn from God and curse him, Satan comes back for more, and God further allows him to touch his health and strength, but what does he say then? He said, but you cannot take his life. That pretty well put the cap on it. God is in complete control. Congregation, this is reality for you and I. You and I need to understand this and walk in this truth every day. And we, I believe we need to hear it and believe it. And it's probably a word we really need to hear in times like this. Now I acknowledge, even from a personal standpoint, that this truth of God's complete sovereignty can and will raise many personal questions for all of us in regards to the painful challenges, the trials, the sufferings and the tribulations that have befallen all of us in our lives in different times, as well as the ones that we might even be enduring right now at this point in time. Because what we just heard implies that it wouldn't be happening to me unless God has allowed it to happen. That's true. And it raises more questions than answers. And we should note that Job had questions too. But we should also note that God never answered them. God never explained to Job what was going on. And Job finally came at the end of the book. He comes to understand that God is God. That's the reality. But he also understood that God is love. That he cares. That he cares deeply for us. And you and I know that on this side of the cross because he sent his son. And Job finally eventually confessed and trusted that God knows best. So then the second R is reaction or response. Because we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the challenges and trials that were brought into the lives of both Job and Peter had a purpose. And that was to expose whatever lived in the hearts of both of them. And, what, and how it gets exposed in all of our lives is by how we react and how we respond to the challenging circumstances. You see, the purpose of any test is to see how we react and respond and ultimately to expose what lives in our hearts. That's why, Peter, that's why Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
That's why Job was part of this discussion, was because it's the same thing's happening here. Nothing's going to happen to Peter or challenge Peter unless God's going to allow it to happen. And before you and I were to get maybe haughty and proud about Peter's fall, it should be noted that all scholars agree that the you in this Satan has asked to sift you as wheat is plural. So the implication is that it was to include all the disciples, but the implication is it's to include you and I. We'll all be sifted as wheat at some point in our lives. You see, in biblical times, the practice of sifting the wheat was intended to separate the chaff from the good kernels. And a harvest of wheat would be brought in from the field and it would be spread out on a stone or concrete floor. And in some cases, they'd get some type of broom and they'd beat on the stuff vigorously. You could say that they put put it under severe stress. And then they would have a type of shovel and they would scoop up some of the wheat and they would throw it up in the air, toss it up, hopefully on a windy day, and the idea was that the lighter chaff would be blown away and the heavier good grain would fall to the ground. And basically the good was separated from the bad or the useless from the useful. So in Job's case, God allowed everything to be taken from him, even touching his health almost unto death, to see what was in Job's heart. And he knew. And even Job's wife encouraged him. She said, curse God and die. Be done with this. But in Simon Peter's case, even though Jesus had even predicted his denial, when he found himself in a stressful position, he actually did deny Jesus three times. And here's where I have to go to a sidebar again. We have to return to the discussion on the limits of Satan's power. In order for Satan to bring an accusation against a saint before God, the only evidence he would have would have to be based on observed behavior or spoken words. Why do I bring this up? Because I think it's important for Christians to understand it. And I think it's been misunderstood for many years for for some. You see, Satan cannot read our minds or know what is in our hearts. Only God can. That was the point, one of the points of the confession this morning when I brought up about secret sins. Your secret sins are a secret between you and God. Satan can't read them out of your heart or your mind. There must have been all kinds of thoughts while things were happening in Job's life. You think about it. What happened to his life in a 24-hour period? There must have been all kinds of things that went through his mind while he was suffering those trials. 
Or even Peter's mind when he was standing there in, the gar- in this place around the fire and being confronted with knowing Jesus and the fear taking over and all kinds of things going through his mind. But whatever went through Job's mind and Peter's mind, Satan was not privy to those thoughts. He wouldn't know what they were unless they became verbalized. He can only go by our behavior and our speech. You see, our biggest enemy is not Satan, as you and I might think so. Our nemesis, our antagonist, is our own hearts. What lives here, what our motives are, what our attitudes are, that's what Satan always wants to expose. He wants to see it come out of our hearts and he wants us to act it out. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And listen to what Jesus himself said in Mark 7. For from within, out of man's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside, from the heart. That's why Job's wife said, curse God and die. She wanted it to come out of his mouth. Then he would have sinned, and Satan could have thrown that accusation right back in front of God. In Peter's case, he verbally and publicly denied knowing Jesus three times. And then the rooster crowed. And Satan was there to observe it and record it and use it. It's all about our reaction, our response to situations and trials and tribulations and challenges that come to us in our lives. I don't know about you, but the COVID challenge, although it's not huge personally, has taught me a lot about my own heart. And there's times when it hasn't been pretty. You see, our reactions expose the foundations of our convictions. What motivates us? The decisions we make. So then we come to the result, our And I trust at this point that we can all agree that God is sovereign. And nothing touches our lives unless God allows it or ordains it. One pastor has said, there are trials in life we meet, and there are trials in life we make. And we will, Lord willing, talk about the trials that we make next Sunday, because I've kind of turned this into a two-part message. But the next one will be quite different than what we're talking about here. And I trust that this morning you can see we're talking about trials and testing that we meet. They come to us by God's decree, his sovereign will, his gracious permission for a purpose. 
Isaiah 48 says, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. James 1 Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then Romans goes farther and suggests that from perseverance comes character, and from character comes hope. We're talking about growing up into a full and mature Christian. And in both cases from the Bible, the purpose for the trials for Job and the, for Peter brought about results. In both cases, it was to test their hearts. And Jesus even makes this point with the sower. Some seed fell on the rocky path, he says. Some fell among the thorns. And it says, but since they had no root... They lasted only a short time. Why? It says because when trouble or persecution came, trials and tribulations, because of the word, they quickly fell away. The seed was tested and it didn't pass. Job had everything going for him and Satan suggested if you take it away, you'll really find out what's in Job's heart. The same argument with Peter. Peter was confident and proud. As I said, they were sitting there wondering who, which one of them was the greatest. So Peter's heart was tested. He found out what lived in it. It's notable again in both cases, God never gives a reason for what is happening. He never explains the situation or shares the outcome. But the result is the same in both cases. Both men are broken and humbled. They come to understand in a very small way who God is, his sovereign grace, and his love and mercy. Job 42 says this at the end of the book. He says, I know, I know God that you can do all things. And I spoke of things that I didn't understand that were way too wonderful for me to understand and to know. He says, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know what Job's talking about? He's talking about the gap. The gap between who God is and who you and I are. And Peter found that out because once that rooster crowed, he'd become convicted By God's word, his heart had been exposed and it says he went out and he wept bitterly. He was also broken and humble. But don't forget, Jesus had prayed for Peter. He said, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You know that Jesus does that for all of us? He's constantly, the Bible says that he's constantly interceding for you and I. That's the beauty of this season. We're coming up to that big place, the cross, where Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for our sin, all of it. The secret sins, the sins past, present, and future. 
And he continues to intercede for us. And he doesn't intercede in a sense that he goes to God the Father and says, oh, please forgive Stan, please forgive me, sorry. No. He goes and says, I shed my blood for him. I've paid the price for him. He's one of us. He's a child of God. You see, Peter's faith wasn't that he would turn from God and run away and desert him and abandon him. No, Peter's faith was to come to God, to know in his heart that he could be forgiven. That was the faith he had. He knew that there was grace there and a mercy that would change his heart. You see, we'll all be tested. It's part of the refining process. It will show us what the foundation of our faith is, what the convictions might be. And it's going to hopefully help us to grow in our faith. Because the encouragement for all of us here this morning, congregation, is Jesus is King and Lord. He's paid the price for our sin. He intercedes for us. And he knows that sometimes when you and I are going to be tested now even, we're not walking with a perfect and pure heart yet. He knows there are times, like Peter, when we're going to fail the test. But he's also praying that our faith will not fail. That we will remember and believe that he has fully paid for all of our sins. Washed us whiter than snow. And whenever we fall, and the accuser comes before heaven and says, stand fell again, it doesn't matter because I'm clean and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. May that be the confession of every person here this morning. May you know that in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a sweet word to hear, especially in this particular time of our lives. For there's lots of things that seem to challenge us, Lord. Not necessarily within our own circles, but that come to us from the outside. Things that seem to want to tear apart the church, to tear apart the church community. Even set brother against brother and sister against sister. over things that sometimes appear to have nothing to do with your word and especially your grace and mercy and love shown to us through Jesus. And maybe it's a form of testing for us, Lord. But help us. Help us to remember and believe that you are God and King and Sovereign. 
And not just over the big things, but over our own personal lives. You know us intimately. You know our coming and going. You know our beginning and end. You know our days. They've been numbered according to your ways. Help us to walk in that truth. Walk in that peace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.